Uh, it, it is great to be with you all today. My name is Derek, one of the teaching pastors here at Bayou City Fellowship. I usually bounce between Spring Branch and Cypress, and so I am so stoked to be with you all today. We're going to be back in the book of James. Some of you are excited. Some of you are saying, no, no more James. Uh, but we're going to be in James chapter 4. We're going to wrap it up. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn there. We're going to get there. Now, now James has been teaching us a thing or two about pride. And, uh, and remember the, the definition that I've given us on pride. It's, it's refusing to see ourselves as God sees us. Uh, that's what pride is. And pride always originates in a lie. Every time, 100%, when you're operating in pride, that's because you believe the lie. You either believe the lie about who God is and who his character is and what he is like, or you believe the lie about yourself. And out of that lie, we begin to operate in a prideful way where we see ourselves either better than others or maybe better than God, or we see ourselves beneath, not worthy of God's love. And so both are pride, both are sin. And so what James has been doing nonstop, left, right, left, right, is saying, hey, pride is serious. And so in chapter 4, he's gone through, and I'm going to give you just a quick summary of what he said pride leads to. Chapter 4, verse 1, he said pride leads to fighting and arguing. If you're married, you've been there. Pride leads to fighting and arguing. Verse number 3, it says that pride leads to praying wrongly. Responsibly, it says that that we actually begin to pray about our own flesh, our own desires. So we pray of things of our own passion, which are praying wrongly. Verse 6, he said that when we walk in pride, it leads to the opposition of God. I remember what I preached a few days ago or a few weeks ago, that, that the reason God opposes us is to restore us. He's always restorative. But it says that if we walk in pride, it's going to lead to God opposing us, pulling back his favor. Verse 9, he says that pride leads us to downplaying our own sin. So, so we think we're pretty good, but we look at the person beside us and we call them out and, and think that they are terrible, yet we fail to see our own sin when we are walking in pride. Verse 11, pride leads to us speaking evil against others, pointing out their faults, their their failures in order to promote ourselves. In verse 12, we see that pride leads us to not trusting God and his commands. That's what Curtis taught a great message last week of adding to the commands. Like we don't see the commands as enough, so we add to it, and then we don't just add to it. We judge people based on what we've added to it, and that's what pride leads us to. And today what we're going to see is that pride leads us to independence from God. An arrogance and not needing to hear a present word from God. This is what we're going to see today. So if you're in James chapter 4, we're going to pick up in verse 13. Come now, you who say today or tomorrow we will go into such and such town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever fails or whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. And so today I thought we would just walk through verse by verse and see what is James speaking to us today. And so he starts out by giving a description to some of his, writer, or some of his readers that they have made plans and said, I'm going to go into the town and I'm going to make a profit. So does anybody in here, are you planners? Anybody, second service, raise your hand, proud. If you're a planner, you love the to-do list, your checklist. Uh, my wife is that way, thankfully. She keeps us in order. Uh, but, but I have been known to make some plans. Uh, does anybody know what it's like when you set a plan out? You're like, this is what's going to happen in my life, and then it doesn't work out. Anybody ever experienced that? Yeah, so I'm going to share a, a few uh, of my plans that I thought would work out. 
You know, when I went to college, uh, I thought I would just study civil engineering. Like, that was my thing. I said, I'm not going to play football anymore. I'm just going to study engineering. And so when I got there, I realized I missed football a whole lot. And so I made the football team, and I also changed majors. majors. Did anybody else change your major in college? There's hope for you college students. Uh, five times is probably about the most. So whatever, if you're on your fifth time, just go with it. Uh, just trust the grace of God. But, but I, I got there, I thought I was going to study simple engineering, but then I ended up playing football and studying mechanical engineering. And so my plan was changed. And then I went to my Bible study, my men's group, after my first Christmas uh, away from college, my freshman year. And I said, hey, guys, I've had some really bad relationships recently. I've made some bad decisions dating, and so I'm not going to date for a year. Uh, a week later, I... I, I I met my wife, who had now become my wife, a month later, and we started to date. Like, so my plan was, don't date for a year, meet this beautiful woman, yes, please. <laughs> and then a little bit later, I said, man, um, I've got a five-year plan. Does anybody else have a five-year plan in college where you're like, I'm going to get through college five years after college, I'm going to be established, I'm going to have a job, then I will get married. Because at that point, I'll have my toys, I'll have my truck, I'll have my dog, my wife can't tell me no. And so that was my plan, five years. But remember, I met Kate my freshman year. We actually got married after my sophomore year of college. Plan, five years. Eight years before that, I get married in college after my sophomore years. My plans changed drastically. And then, of course, we had a plan that we're going to have kids at some point. As you men know, like, we're going to have kids in the future, honey, like way, way down the future. Maybe five years, that plan, maybe five years after we get married. But after we got married... Before my last year of college, my wife was surprised that we were pregnant. Uh, she was pregnant. I just happened to be with her. <laughs> and so my plans changed. Like, I'm going to have a kid later, but now my son, he's going to be here. And I'm going to go through a whole year of college, and I'm going to have this little baby. And I'm going to be playing football. My wife's going to have to work to provide for us. Humbling. Changed my plans. And then we were planning to have a second child. And so we timed it up. We knew what was going to happen. You know, we had had the talk about the birds and the bees. And so we knew what was going to happen. And so my wife gets pregnant. So glorious. Two weeks after we find out she's pregnant, she had a miscarriage. Like our plans changed on the dime. I had this vision, and then things changed. And then growing up, you know, I had great parents. A man and a woman. I was the only child. I'd always thought they would be married. I just didn't, that never crossed my mind that they wouldn't be. But two years after I got married, 28 years into their marriage, they got a divorce. My understanding of marriage changed. My, my plans for what my kids would know, what, what I would know as a son, they changed on a dime. You know, I, I also said one thing. I said I would never live in Houston, Texas. <laughs> Literally, I said this to my wife. Six months later, I accepted a job in Houston, Texas. Crazy how God has just shown me, Derek, you really are not that smart. <laughs> and, and then finally, you know, I studied mechanical engineering, not because I wanted to be an engineer. Uh, sorry, no offense to you engineers. My purpose in studying engineering was so that I could go get an MBA later and then to be the man who runs a company. Like, that was my vision and that was my goal and that's what I was running after. Got in the corporate world, did really well there, and I stand before you today as your pastor. My plans change, and maybe you can relate to that. Maybe you've had some plans that were good, and in your head you're like, I know what it's going to look like in the future, yet you're sitting here today and say, wow, like that wasn't what I had intended. I think we do this all the time, and, uh, 
And we see that things change, whether that's for the better or for the worse. And what James is telling us today, that it's foolish and arrogant to think that we can predict and control our own future apart from God. This kind of thinking, it breeds independence. And this is why pride is so destructive to our relationship, a relationship with God, but also a relationship with somebody else. Because pride teaches us that we don't need another. Like, I don't need God. I've got this. I don't need my spouse to weigh in on this. I've got this. I don't need friends of accountability around me because I have this. And so what we see is pride, it, it crushes and breaks relationship because we don't think we need anybody else. And so what God desires for you today, hear me, if this is all you hear, God desires to be in a loving relationship with each and every person here. But it requires us to trust him and to have faith. And when we operate with this control mindset, what happens is we actually miss out on God and his purposes for our life. Now, when James is saying here that there's a, a group of people specifically saying that they say go and, and they have a plan. Listen, for you planners, there's nothing wrong with having a plan, like nothing. And some of you are like, okay, I'm good now. I can, I, can, I can listen to Derek now. There's nothing wrong with having a plan. And I would say it's actually very healthy for each of us to have a short-term plan for yourself, a mid-range plan, and a long-term range plan for yourself, for your family, and even for your company. When, when I was still in the corporate world, that's one of the things I did for the company is I would gather, like, what do we want to do as a company? What profits do we want to hit? What sales do we want to hit? I would take these objectives, and I would say, how do we link that to what we do today? Whether that's the CEO or, or the person that's actually putting together and manufacturing the part, how do we tie that back to the vision? And we would say, what do we do in a year? What do we use in five years? And so I'm all for planning. And, and what he says here, they, they plan, and they're planned to make a profit. Now, how many of you know profit is a good thing? Can somebody tell me amen? Like right now in the economy that we're in, like our companies in Houston need to turn a profit. It's not good. It's not good for you to be in the red at home. You need to turn a profit. And so what James is not saying is it's that it's bad for you to make a profit. He's not telling these guys, hey, don't plan on making a profit. No, that would counter the word of God that says in 1 Timothy 5, 8 that, If anyone does not provide for his relatives or especially for the members of his household, he is denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. So the scripture makes it very clear that we are to provide, to make a profit, to provide for our family. But here's the thing. God oftentimes gives us a plan and he gives us a strategy, yet never does he desire for us to carry out that strategy apart from depending upon him. Here, listen to this. We must not neglect God as we obey God. This might mess with some of your theology. We are never to neglect God even when we are obeying God. Now, this is powerful because we can do this. Okay, I hear God, and so now I'm going to go and do what God tells me. There's nothing wrong with that. But what's wrong is when we hear God, we go and do what he's told me to do, but I shut off my ears and I don't look to him and I begin to go under my own control. That's sin. And there are major risks involved when I, when I shut down. I hear God. Okay, God, I'm going to step. I step forward, yet I stop looking to God for what he wants me to do. There are real risks involved when we take control, even if God has led us to some place. And we're going to see this back in Genesis. If you have your Bible, turn to Genesis chapter 22. We're going to see uh, the story of Abraham. Now, now, a lot of you guys know the story of Abraham. 
He was the man that called, God called out and said, hey, I'm going to make a, a mighty nation out of you. Your descendants are going to be like the sands in the sea. Yet there was one problem. Abraham didn't have any kids. And Abraham was old. His, his wife wasn't old, but she was advanced in years. Remember that? We don't call a lady old. She was advanced in years. And, uh, and, and so she's like laughing at God for saying like she's going to have a kid. And so after that word, I believe it was like 20 some years later, God fulfilled that promise that he had told Abraham. And he had a son. His name was Isaac of Sarah. Okay. And so he's got this son. And we're going to pick up the story uh, where God has called Abraham to do something in, in verse 1 of chapter 22. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah. Does anybody else think of Moriah Carey when they read that? I don't know. Maybe it's just me. Go to the land. I'm sorry. Let's get back here. Uh, the, we're going to go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, sat on his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac, and he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. Now, now we've got to also recognize the context of what God has called Abraham to. Now, during this time, uh, uh, it was actually a pretty normal practice for uh, a pagan society to take their firstborn and to sacrifice him or her to the gods. And so I, I love what we see. God, God actually meets Abraham in, in what he knows. He's not speaking so abstractly. Like he, he actually asked him to do something that would have been somewhat common to him. And so he goes to Abraham and says, hey, take your firstborn and, and, and you're going to sacrifice him. And so what we see Abraham do is he, he, he hears God, he, he obeys God, and he begins to step out and to go where God has told him to go. But what we see Abraham do is he never takes his eyes off of God. And actually the way God told him to do it, is, I'm going to show you in the future the mountain to go to. And so even in that setup, God had set him up to depend upon the present word of God. And so we never see Abraham shut down and say, okay, God told me to go do this. I'm going to go do this, and I'm not going to hear from God again. That's not what we see in Abraham. Because if he would have done that, remember, God told him to kill his son. And we're going to see something change, though, in, in verse 9. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. Now, stop right there. He's obeying God. God told him, go take your son. I'm going to show you. Go to that hill. Kill your son. Now listen, if he just would have shut down and stopped listening, he would have missed this. But then verse 11 happens, the grace of God. It says, but the angel of the Lord, God, called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hands on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Now what we see Abraham do, he heard a word from God. He stepped in faith. As he was stepping in faith, he never once shut down and made himself independent from God. He was always looking, God, what do you have for me? What are you saying in this moment? And even to the very end when he's got the knife up, he is still waiting for God, expecting God to speak. And so when he did that, he was aware. God spoke and he says, okay, I'm, I'm not going to kill my son. And, and God provided a ram in the bush. <laughs> Amazing provision. And what I put before you today is I think sometimes we operate 
where we hear God, we obey God, but then we start controlling the circumstance. And as we start controlling the circumstance, we fail to hear God. And what if God has called you to something else? Because we see if, if he would have gone through, he would have killed Isaac, his only son, the one he loved. And history would have been changed. Our faith, Abraham, Isaac, that would have been changed forever. Yet he consistently looked to God even as he was obeying God. He did not neglect God as he was obeying God. And I, I recently heard a pastor that I really love and appreciate. He, he said this about this story. He said, many Isaacs have been killed because of what God has said Instead of what God is saying. And that's amazing. And I'm taking zero credit for this. I want to say it again because this is powerful. You can chew on this for months. He said, many Isaacs have been killed because of what God has said instead of what God is saying. So I I ask you, do you have any Isaacs in your life that you are killing right now? Is there an area in your life where you have heard God clearly, you've stepped in obedience, yet today you are not looking to God for a present word? Is there any area where you've got so much control that you're like, God called me to this and I've got my tunnel vision on, yet what if God is saying, hey, Derek, I got you here as a test, but now I want to show you something better? We must be careful that we don't operate with this kind of mindset where we neglect God as we obey God, we must never trade a strategy for the present leading of God. If we do, we have taken control. We have taken the place of God, and what James says is it is prideful and it's evil. And as I was processing through this, there was this other question that maybe you've asked yourself, but I want to ask you, is there any area of your life where you're really having to live by faith? Is there any area of your life where you are really dependent upon God? Because we know the scriptures say, apart from faith, it's impossible to please God. And so if there's no area in your life, maybe it's your prayer life, maybe it's how you're operating at work, maybe it's how you're doing your finances, maybe it's the decisions that you're making. If there's no requirement of faith, if you're not depending on God, if you're just going through the autopilot, I want to put before you today that, that maybe you're not doing and hearing what God has called you to do and hear. And, and maybe if Satan has you right where he wants you, complacent and unaware Maybe you're like, man, my life's great. I have no problems. I'm healthy. I got a good bank account. Like this depression, like this economy, kind of, it's not affecting me. I'm good. What if that's exactly where Satan wants you? Not stepping in faith. Not having to depend on God. Yet he just wants you to live and be naive to that. Like what if God has called you to something greater and we're missing it? We've got to wake up a little bit. We've got to recognize that we can't just follow God. We've got to follow God by continuing to look to God for what is he saying right now. The, the next verse we see is 14 and 15 in James. He goes on to say after he talks about this making plans, he says, uh, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. And he asks the question, what is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time. And then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. So remember, James, this whole section is, is, is calling us out, is calling the readers out for, for pride. And he's like, listen, you need to choose to humble yourself. And if you're not going to choose to humble yourself, I'm going to help you. And so he, he, he puts this question before you, before them. 
what is your life? It's really quiet in here because that's a question we all wrestle with. Whether you don't believe in God, whether you're kind of trying to figure out the God thing, or whether you're a believer and have been walking with him 30 years, we all should wrestle with the question, what is our life? What is the value of our life? What is the purpose of our life? What is the direction of our life? These are the questions that we should be asking ourselves and we should be able to answer as believers. What is my life? And what James does is he helps us get some perspective. He says, if you're not going to humble yourself, I'm going to help you humble yourself right now. And he points out to two things after he says, what is your life? The first thing he points out is he says, you do not know what tomorrow will bring. He's telling the readers, listen, your understanding is limited. You don't know what's tomorrow. You don't know. This reminds us, though, when we think about this, that we really aren't in control. That we don't control the weather. That we don't control the economy. We don't control people around us. We really don't control anything if it boils down to what's true and what's not true. So for me, when I remember this reality, what it makes me do is I want to run to the God who has no limit on his understanding. If I'm limited, I want to be connected to the God who is unlimited in his understanding. I also want to be connected to the God who looks at tomorrow as if it were yesterday. I don't know what tomorrow holds, but there is one that does, and his name is God, Jesus, Holy Spirit, Father. He knows what tomorrow brings. So I want to be so close to him. I want to be connected. I want to be hearing him because he knows what's going to happen. I don't. The second thing James points out is he says, uh, you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. And what he's pointing out is your life is brief. It's here today and gone tomorrow. I'm still pretty young relatively. I like to consider myself a young adult at least. I'm getting close to the age of where it's not quite so young. But, but some of you have had some more decades under your belt than I have. And, and so you can connect with what James is saying, that, that life is short. You look back at the decades, and they start to kind of come together, and, and you're like, man, my life has been so quick. Like, where did all the time go? Or maybe you know somebody, and you've lost somebody really early on in their life, and you're like, man, they died way too soon. And you recognize better than some of us that life is really, really short. And so James is pointing out that, yes, your life is short compared to eternity. It's like a blink of an eye. It's the vanishing mist of history. It's here one second and gone the other. And so he's trying to say, if you're not going to humble yourself, I'm going to humble you by showing you some perspective. And, and, and you know, I'm a numbers guy, uh, engineering, all that good stuff. And so I thought I would give you guys some numbers to help give us some perspective today. Uh, today in the world, there are approximately 7.4 Billion people alive worldwide. 7.4 billion. And some historians, most historians say that, that for the span of history, there have been between 100 and 150 billion births on this planet. I brought a number so you guys can see this if you're more tangible. So, so listen, you are one of one zero zero. Zero, 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 100 billion. Let that sink in a second. And today, as we started this service and by the time we closed this service, uh, every minute there are about 255 babies born in the world. And, and, and the other side of the coin is in the time that we are spending today, every minute about 108 people die. 
So by the time we started to the time we leave, that's about 23,000 crying babies and 9,720 deaths. Let that sink in a second. Let that make you feel really, really, really small. Because that's what James wants us to see today. You are not God. (laughs) There is only one God. You think you control something? He's like, no, think again. You don't even know what tomorrow brings. And and by the way, your life, that 80, 90 years that you hope, that's a blink of an eye and it's vanishing. Humble yourself. Recognize that you are not God. You are not ultimately in control. And then he goes on and says that we should, instead of saying this is what I'll do, we should say instead if the Lord wills. Now, does that mean that James wants us to, every time we say that we're going to do something, to slap on this tagline that says, if God wills? Uh, hey, I'm, I'm going to go to the bathroom in between the services, if God wills. <laughs> uh, I'm going I'm to um, pick my kids up from school, if God wills. And some of you moms are praying that that's not God's will. You're like, let them stay, like, detention, like, give me another breather. I, I get that. So, so God doesn't care about the words. They're inconsequential. What James is speaking to is its perspective. He's saying, I I want you guys to have the conscious awareness that God is working in and through everything you're going through. That he wants you to see that you are, are not the end. It's not about you. That you're not in control. There's someone bigger. There's someone that's sovereign. There's somebody that is eternal. And so James is pointing to us, humble ourselves. You are not in control. Rest in that. Embrace that. There's the freedom in that. And then he gets to verse 16. And James goes on and says, As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So, so James is saying, you, you, you pump up yourself with, with what you think you can control. That's the arrogance that he's talking about. You tell others about what you've done and what you will do, and he says that is evil. So James says, don't do it. Don't brag. Don't think that you have control, and then talk about it because it's nonsense. Apart from God's grace, you would be unable to do or attain anything. Now, if you have not lived in a cave the last year or so, you know there's an election that's getting ready to take place. It's a big one. It's a really big one. Just like everyone is big, honestly. Now, back in 2012, does anybody remember the President Obama versus Mitt Romney uh, deba- or, uh, contest? Anybody remember that? So there was, there was this uh, line that President Obama, he was given a speech, and, and he was given a speech, and he said, um, he was speaking to small businesses, and he said, you didn't build that. Does anybody remember that? And what was actually interesting, which was what politics do, that was taken completely out of context. Sorry to break your dreams. What he actually was speaking of was the infrastructure that helped the small businesses to succeed. He's saying, you didn't build the infrastructure, yet what did the Republican Party do? They took that out of context, and they made it their anthem. And what was their anthem? We built it. And people around the country were stirred to think, yeah, it wasn't the president especially wasn't President Obama, it was me, I'm the business owner, I'm the one that's brought this up and birthed this thing from nothing, I did that, it's me, we did this. And there's some truth there, there really is, if you own a small business, it's hard. I grew up in a family where my dad had several businesses and started from nothing and 
grew from there. And so like the blood, the sweat, the tears, the anxiety, putting your house up on the market so that you can continue to put some cash in your business, I, I get all that, and that's a ton. But what James would point to today, it's foolish to think that you build it yourself. Because what if instead of being born in America, the land of the free, what if instead of trying to build your company in a, in a place where there's a free market, what if you instead were born in the middle of sub-Saharan Africa, in the middle of a hut with eight brothers and sisters, and two of them died before they were age one, and your dad killed himself because he couldn't take it? Do you think if you took all the things that you possess, all your abilities, all your knowledge, all your understanding, everything that God gifted you with, could you get there today in that circumstance? I would contest that the answer is no. You see, it's just by the common grace of God that you were born in America where you had opportunity. And so what James is telling us today is don't boast in your arrogance. Don't think that you really control it all because apart from God's grace, you can attain nothing. You can be nothing. It's purely God's grace. As I was studying this week, I happened upon a commentary that I like a whole lot. The guy's name is Dr. Constable, and he's speaking into this verse where James says, don't boast in your arrogance. And he says this, they derived joy from feeling that they controlled their own destiny. Here is the picture of a self-made man taking credit for what God has given him. Boasting of this kind is unrealistic. It betrays an attitude that puts man in God's place. And for this reason, James writes, it is evil. James says it's, it's evil. I would agree. It, it is evil because when we think of ourselves as in control, when we think that I've made this happen, that I deserve this, what we've actually done is we bought into the lie of Satan. Remember, Satan was created a good, amazing, beautiful angel. He was worshiping God, and he had a high place in the hierarchy of angels. Yet one day he said, I'm not good here. I see what God has, his glory, his position. I want that. So he said, I will ascend to the throne of God. I will be like God. I will be above. I will. I will. And so we see this, this is the pride thing. And this is what Satan wants you to fall to, for you to think that you control things, that it is all about you, that you've made it happen. And so James says, don't boast in your success both in the past or in the future because it is evil. It assumes that you are in control and that it, and God isn't. This is foolishness, complete foolishness. Apart from grace, you would have nothing, not even the breath as we just sang, to sing. Grace, breathe it in, let it out, that's grace. And then we close chapter four out with one last verse. He kind of gives a summation of what he's been talking about. And this verse actually can summarize really what all James has written at this point. Verse 17, he says, so whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Now, now did you hear what he said here? He, he did not say, if you know what's wrong, and you do that, that's sin. He says the opposite. He said, if, if you know what's right and you choose not to do what's right, that is sin. It's disobedience. And so what we see is you come into the kingdom and you start following Jesus, that the, the first you know, season of that is really God pointing out some, some things and purifying you about the things that you are attracted to. 
the, the bad things, the wrong things, the sinful things. But over time in that sanctification process, if we're really walking with the Spirit of God and he's producing his fruit, not you producing it, if we're allowing him to transform us, conform us into the image of Christ, if we're doing that, over time the things of this world should grow strangely dim, as the song says. That over time, our desire for the things of the world should diminish. Not that they'll ever go away, but they should diminish. And so as we mature in Christ, what's going to happen is we're going to think less about doing the wrong things. And we're going to transition to say, man, am I not doing the right things? And the right things could be lots of things. Maybe God speaks to you as I believe he does. We see in scripture and I've experienced my own life. And he says, hey, I want you to go tell this person something. When I hear that, I, I'm going to make a decision. Am I going to obey or disobey? I haven't done anything wrong per se, but my lack of doing what was good that I knew was good is a sin. It's disobedience. And we've got to ask the question, why don't I do what is good? It's a great question if you're looking at this. Why don't I do what is good? Why, why can't I just do it? And I think the answer is that we're selfish. Because oftentimes to do what is good is going to cost you something. It's going to be an inconvenience to you. It's going to put you out in the area of faith, which is where God wants you anyhow. And we see this here, and maybe you can experience this in your own life when, you know, the Lord is speaking to me, and it's not some crazy thundering from heaven. When we say God speaks, we're not talking about that, but there's, the Spirit is in us, and he's giving us impressions, and sometimes he gives us a vision or whatever he, he does. Sometimes for me as a husband, like, I know God is calling me to speak a good word over my wife. Or maybe on some of those days he's asking me to rub her feet. That's a good thing. Amen, woman? Yet, yet when I fail to do what I know is good, it's a sin. And I don't do what I know is good because it's going to cost me something. It's selfishness. I, I didn't tell this story in the first service, but maybe I'll tell it this time as uh, when uh, about a year into walking with the Lord, really like really walking with the Lord, not just going to church and following my wife and doing what she asked me to do, when I really said, God, I'm, I'm yours, uh, I'm submitting to you, and I got to know the Holy Spirit, uh, I was in a church service in worship, and the Lord gave me this vision of uh, the elders praying over me uh, of our church, and they asked me this question, Derek, uh, are you still dealing with pornography? And in that moment, I, I was either going to lie to them and say, no, I've, been, I've never done that or it's been a long time. Or I was going to say, you know what, I'm not currently dealing with this, but a, a year ago I was. And if I told the truth in front of my wife, that she would immediately know that I had been lying to her for five years. See, I told my wife that I had been clean for five years, but the truth was it's only been about a year at this point. And so in worship, I just break down and I go to the front. <laughs> I never forget, I was a mess. I did not want to do this. I went to the front. I'm just snotty crying. My pastor's like, what in the world got into Derek? Like, so embarrassing. And I just said, just pray with me. Pray for me, man. I, don't, I can't say this, but go ahead and pray. So God had asked me to do something that was good for a marriage. And was I going to step into that? And so that afternoon, I, the kids were laid down, and I got her at our table. And, uh, and I wrestled with God a long time. And I said, God, I don't want to do this. But I knew it was what he was calling me to. So I heard, if I didn't do it, it would have been sin. And so I got down on my knees and I said, honey, I, I've been lying to you for five years. And it's wrecked our marriage. And I'm sorry. And I began to weep. She began to weep. I got down on my knees and began to kiss her feet. And uh, 
hear me though, I'm not telling you guys or you women to go and tell all right now. This is specific to what God had called me. That's why it says, if he that knows what is good and fails to do it, to him it is sin. God had called me specifically to go after five years, after a year of being clean. He finally said, Derek, now it's time. Now go. So I'm not telling you to go because if you go home and you tell your wife everything and God never told you to, it may be a bad thing. So before you just go puke all over your wife, maybe you should pray about it. And wives, you too, because it's not just a men issue. Maybe some of your wives are having some conversations via text or you're having some relationship with guys at work that you know are not of God. They're not honoring your husband. So this is not just a man and not a woman issue. It's both sides. But, but hear me, I, when God spoke to me, I knew what I was called to do. And if I didn't do it, that's sin. And so I ask you today, what is God calling you to, good, to do good, yet you are not doing it? What is it? What is he calling us to? And I think the last two words I want us to close up with that kind of summarize James here are two words. Reject and embrace. I think what James is writing here is he's calling us in this entire chapter. He's saying reject the lies of Satan. Embrace the truth of God. Reject the pride of thinking you are in control, as we talked about today. And instead, embrace the humility of knowing that God is in control. Reject independence from God and embrace dependence upon God. He says, you guys know what's good. To humble yourself, to draw near to God. You know that. You not doing it is sin. And so what is keeping you from not doing what is good today? Is it yourself? Because James would say, you got to get over yourself. Humble yourself. Come to him. Ask him for forgiveness. Receive that forgiveness. Let your mind be renewed and align yourself with his truth and then step out in faith. That's what it looks like today. That's what James wants us to do. So what are you embracing? What are you rejecting? It'll make all the difference. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you so much that um, the scripture tells us that those that draw near to you, that you draw near to them. That you not only oppose the proud, but you also pour out grace upon the humble. And so, Lord, I ask today that you would um, that you'd allow the word of God to, to penetrate our heart, to bring us into proper perspective. That we would see you as God and us as not God. And that that would draw us to you and not push us away. That we would reject the lies of the enemy. That we would reject the notion that we can do it on our own. That we would embrace your truth. That we would embrace your grace today. So Lord, whatever you're calling each individual to do, I I pray that you would make it clear even in this worship song. If there's something that you just want to stir, I pray you would not take it often. That you would press down hard if you're calling somebody to do something good and they're not doing it today. Lord, give us faith to step in areas that require us to depend on you. For your namesake, for your glory, and only for that, Lord. Move in our hearts right now. Bring life. Restore even as we pray in your name.